two dudes, one microphone, absolutely zero calves. Welcome to Team No Calves Radio with your hosts, Ollie and Adam. And welcome to episode six of Team No Cars Radio with your hosts, myself, Ollie Carson, and of course, Adam Boy Brown. How's it going, Adam? Yeah, pretty good, mate. We just had some uh, some serious Skype issues, but yeah. we, we managed to avoid and jump that hurdle now, so we're all good. Technical difficulties uh, have it. been kind of resolved, and so we're we're up and running, and hopefully we've sorted some of the audio issues that we had on, on previous podcasts. We'll, we'll play that back, obviously, in the editing process and make sure that it's as smooth listening as possible. Um, and today, guys, we've got a slightly different episode for you in that we're going to be answering a lot of the questions that have been posed to us by our, our social media platforms. Um, and we want to make this a regular occurrence, so we'll be putting posts out on, on Instagram and Facebook, asking for your guys' input, and we'll do our best and endeavor to answer those questions for you. So... We're going to kick it off right away today with some of the questions that we've got from Facebook and the first one that we've got. So our first question is from John Rainford who says, given I have my grenade for eight shoot in three weeks, any tips on peaking for a photo shoot would be ace. Yeah, um, so I'll I'll start us off with this. It'd be interesting to hear kind of um, both our sides and, and how we kind of deal with this. I mean, the first one I would um, go into is actually do you need to be doing any peaking? Um, what I mean by this is, in reality, peaking is something that is perhaps only required um, by very few people who are perhaps looking to, to step on the stage at extremely low levels body fat. Um, and I think we're probably talking, you know, probably about 6% body fat, something like that, like a mm. legitimate 6%. Um, and for most people, if you were to guesstimate what you are, probably add on at least three or four percent onto that, and that's more than likely what you would be. Mm. Um, so just using that as kind of a precursor to do you perhaps need a peak, or or would you be better off just actually continuing the diet for um, the extra week? However, if there is someone in particular that is um, you know looking to peak for stage and they're in a position where it's it's good to do so, the main thing I'm looking to make sure they're doing is. First of all, make sure that they're managing their stress levels appropriately um, because that's going to be the biggest thing and the the biggest problem in terms of water retention. Um, So I'm trying to limit water retention as much as possible for the big day. Um, Obviously, that's something that generally we'll try and people have always tried to avoid in the past by not drinking any water. But in reality, managing stress levels is much more important for, for actually water retention than Um, doing weird things with water itself Um, so first of all I'll probably make sure that they're prioritizing their sleep during the week Um, so I'm making sure that they've got good pre-bed habits in place Uh, I'm making sure that they're getting enough sleep and uh, in terms of actual training I'll probably try and bring training stress down a little bit so the actual workouts themselves will be uh, much more sort of full body pump style workouts if they're in a position where they they you know do definitely warrant a peak uh, I will probably take out a lot of the leg days. Um, so a, a heavy, heavy leg day is going to lead to some water retention. So I'll probably drop those out in the final week. Um, and I'll bring down their, their cardio levels. Um, so if they're doing any formal cardio at all, I'll look to probably half that uh, at, at the very least just to, to try and, you know, really almost decrease any deficit. Um, you know, ideally, if you're peaking for a shoot, you don't really want to be in a deficit for that week. You're probably better off being a, a maintenance figure for that week because you are, 
you know, essentially should be low enough body fat to actually warrant doing a peak in the first place. Mm. Um, so once I've managed those uh, kind of stress levels, the next thing I'd want to do is make sure that they have uh, full glycogen stores. So obviously they want to look as big as possible in front of the camera in terms of muscle density. And so what we need to do is make sure that there is enough glycogen, enough stored carbohydrate in the muscle. And there are different ways that, that we do this generally. Um, there's front loading and there's back loading. And these are different ways of loading carbohydrates into the muscles um, in order to make sure that they're kind of full for the day. Um, so, I mean, maybe, Ollie, you'd be better off kind of expanding on uh, the different kind of strategies for, for loading carbohydrates, maybe? Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, I'll just start by saying I mirror exactly what you say there with one, um, is this an, a necessary action that we need to take leading into a photo shoot or a competition, obviously dependent on the well, I would, I would like to think on a competition, then yes, it is because we would expect to be at, at that level of, of condition in terms of body fat. But of course, there are now categories where we don't need to be necessarily um, 6% body fat to step on stage. The men, men's physique categories, for example, don't require that level mm -hmm. of conditioning. Um, but yeah, in terms of strategies for, for you know, peaking into a show and, and glycogen stores, like you mentioned there, you've got um, front-loading carbohydrate and back-loading carbohydrate and within those also different methods as well um, and generally speaking what I tend to use with my guys is a, is a front load um, I like to get carbohydrate in early to get them filling out almost to a point of what we call spilling so almost mm -hmm. you know over consumed on carbohydrates and perhaps holding a bit of water I then yep. taper the carbohydrate intake off towards the end of the week so maybe three or four days out from the competition Mm -hmm. um, and then reassess their physique, um, you know, a day or two before the competition, assess whether they look like they could, you know, handle more carbohydrate. And it's very individual based. But I guess the most important thing to know is that all of these methods that I implement are tried and tested prior to the actual peak week of the competition. So I usually run what's called a mock peak week. Um, mm -hmm. And I try to keep this as close to the stage or photo shoot as possible, but with it being far enough away that we can sort things out if it goes horribly wrong. So generally yep. speaking, we're looking three weeks before the stage or the photo shoot. And what that does is it allows me um, to look at the athlete in one of their leanest stages possible, um, but also give me that week interim period between actual peaking and peaking uh, and not peaking, sorry, um, to allow me to pull things back in if we do kind of mess it up a bit. So I usually do a mock peak week three weeks before stage or photo shoot. And then regardless of if I think things could be better or not, I generally stick to my guns. And if it works, as in they look good on the day of the, the mock photo shoot or the mock you know, stage, um, I, I stick to that because we know that that works and we know that you know the individuals had good success with it. And also mm -hmm. psychologically, it provides a lot of reassurance to the individual that when we give them these protocols, that it's tried, it's tested, we know it works well, there's no second guessing. And when we go back to that whole stress element, yeah. they can just kind of relax, you know, because it's like, we've done this already and we know that I look good on that day. So mm -hmm. automatically the stress levels come right down. And that's one of the, the massive um, reasonings for me doing mock peak weeks. Yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head there and it, it has to have been something that's really been tested beforehand um, in terms of, you know, 
if you are just guessing at it, it's going to be really difficult to have any faith in what you're doing whatsoever. Mm. Also, if you are doing it for yourself and you don't actually particularly know the reasons why you're doing things, um, you're just going to be guessing at it and, you know, whatever happens, happens on the day, really. Mm. Um, you hear stories all the times of people going, oh, I spilled over or I was too flat on that day. Mm. And it's it's more often than not, isn't it? You know, yeah. more often than not, when someone's trying to peak, 95% of the time they'll say they got it wrong. Yeah. And it's like, if you were looking great, a week or two weeks before it's mm. like just um, keep doing what you're doing that's really. it that's it more often than not what i'll tend to do with guys who who aren't necessarily lean enough like you spoke about is and the thing is is you have to get them to buy into this situation because everybody wants to peak like honestly mm. everyone that i've worked with has this fascination with this magical week that makes you look from from great to amazing but unfortunately yeah, yeah. more often than not it's just not the case um, mm -hmm. So to get someone to buy into the idea that you're going to be far better off just sticking to exactly what it is that you're currently doing is quite difficult, but it usually pays off because like you rightly say, you know, these guys look brilliant all week leading up to the big day. Um, and then to go and just change all of these variables yeah. seems completely ridiculous, you know, but um, it's it's understandable when it's we're surrounded by it on social media etc you know everyone's talking about peak week and how important mm -hmm. it is so i do get it but um I, I try to convince guys to to do what they're doing currently and just trust that plus you see people doing really strange things with it in that they'll eat a load of foods that they haven't eaten mm. or prep mm. on the, the day or two before you yeah. know what i mean like they're, they're smashing in hundreds of grams of sugar and yeah all these foods and then they're, they're surprised when they have like a, a negative reaction to it and bloat like mad the next day and it's like probably better off like i would say uh a really sensible kind of guideline for most people is if you're looking to do like a peak um but a peak in a, a much more sensible uh way would be to just do what your normal diet was so just continue mm -hmm. dieting fairly normally and then the two days beforehand perhaps have a high day like a, a refeed style day yeah um that hopefully would be in your kind of plan anyway uh where you're back at maintenance calories are a bit higher and it just helps fill you out a little bit more mm -hmm. probably helps with a little bit of water dropping um because you're out of that out of that deficit and in reality that's probably going to make you look as good as probably a well-structured peak week would do anyway mm, definitely and this is the thing as well is a good point that you just said there as in it will make you look as good as a good peak week will anyway nobody knows if you've had a successful peak week or not like yeah, yeah. you don't you don't have to run a peak week to be successful on stage or in front of a camera like like we say if you look good you look good um this mm -hmm. isn't going to be the be all and end all it's for me it's for a high-end athlete who's at incredibly low levels of body fat and can actually reap some benefits from you know uh, replenishing glycogen stores to a high level and uh, really filling mm. out but for, yeah. the, for the general population it's not something that you really need to consider doing yeah cool right so if we uh i think we've sort of coped with that pretty well yeah. um so next question we got in is matt Barron says how do i build my calves winky face emoji winky face emoji winky face emoji and uh, i know it's tongue-in-cheek but i think it's worthwhile answering it anyway how do I build my calves? Um, so, Ollie, why don't you go with this one, mate? Yeah, so I guess um, there's, a, there's a massive debate, isn't there, about the kind of the genetic predisposal to, to calves and, 
you know, your genetic, genetic capability and how much that has an impact on the structure of your calves. And to some extent, that's true because it's the same with all the musculature in your body. You know, you are, you are subject to what your genetics, you know, will allow. But it's, it's the same as anything in that, um, you know, with structured training and nutrition, there's definitely progress to be made. I, I think the thing with calves, and honestly, I think from, you know, kind of, my experience and seeing people training it's one of those things that people just don't do yeah you know yeah. and i'm bad for it as well if i get to the end of a leg session and i've got two you know two calf exercises i'm at least chinning one of those off <laughs> <laughs> and i know yeah. you do as well adam i yeah, always see oh, you yeah. you know yeah. so the thing is is you see me look at it as i walk past <laughs> and yeah stop, and then i stop for a minute look like i'm gonna do it and then i walk away guilty yeah as if like the thought was enough yeah, yeah, yeah. But honestly, if you're really, really, really honest with yourself, do you train your calves with the same intensity and volume that you do your biceps? And if the answer is no, then maybe look at that before looking for. Mm. And it's almost like people want an easy out. Oh, they just are that way. And it's almost acceptable, yeah. you know? It's like, oh, he's got small calves, but so is everybody. And that's. <laughs> and, <laughs> but this, this podcast is named off the back of that, and it's, it is tongue in cheek, but. Um, it's, you know, it really does come down to, you know, are you doing enough? And mm. I would address that before looking for some magic solution. Yeah, I think if you're looking at it from like a technical standpoint um, as well, it's, it is going to come down to you have to apply the same principle you'd apply to everything in terms of progressively overloading them. Mm -hmm. um, but also as well is, is I, I think a lot of people definitely miss a, a lot of the range of a calf mm. exercise. You see people just bouncing out that little tiny yeah. mid-range, um, where in reality the, the calves themselves can move you pretty much onto uh, the pad just below the toes of the feet. You know, yeah. you can get right up on there. Um, and I think people just don't move through a, a far enough range of motion yeah. with their calf work. Um, as well as that, I think um, in reality the calves are kind of built for endurance, That's right. so for walking around all day. And so it means that in reality, you're probably going to have a, a hell of a lot uh, more slow twitch muscle fibers there, mm -hmm. um, which perhaps would respond a little bit better to higher volume work, higher yeah. rep range work, um, but also adding in some extra kind of stimulus in the form of some low um, heavy stuff. You know, a good combination of those rep ranges would probably be a, a good way to go with it. And then just prioritize it. You know, mm -hmm. you really want to build your calves, make it the first exercise you do yeah. so you don't you don't chin it off and yeah and i guess anecdotally you're talking about the the slow twitch muscle fibers there you you take someone like an endurance athlete like a cyclist mm. and they just have huge huge calves and you see them yeah. go past you on the street and it's like wow those calves are impressive and you look at yeah. most bodybuilders and their calves are you know wanting and it's like <laughs> a good bodybuilder genetically is made up of a lot of fast twitch muscle fiber and mm -hmm. and a good endurance athlete like a cyclist is built up predominantly of slow twitch muscle fiber genetically and so that kind of does sway towards that argument of mm -hmm. just how they're built up and how we should train them yeah it's kind of i mean it's obviously observational but i think there's a, it speaks a lot for that you know what i mean like you you do look at guys and especially also if you've been a lot heavier in the past you know, I mean, you want to get good calves, get fat, and then lean down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, um, that will build some calves. So, yeah. James Lawson says, which isn't really a question, the importance of rest, mentally and physically. Full stop. So, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you want to touch on kind of physically, Adam, the importance of rest first. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, uh, training for size is going to usually incur some high volumes of training for a, a prolonged period of time. And obviously, with each bout of training, you are going to incur muscle damage with that. You're going to incur fatigue. Um, and there's only so much fatigue you can incur and still keep moving forward before you're going to have to take a, a rest from, from training. Mm. Now, this doesn't mean, obviously, a complete rest in that you have to take a whole week off. Mm. Um, although I'd probably recommend that some people take, well, most people take probably at least two weeks of the year away from probably training altogether. Mm. Um, you know, they might be going in and perhaps doing little bits and pieces, but usually it will, it will kind of tie in with either being ill for a week or something like that yeah. or being at Christmas or being on holiday and you'll generally kind of get your week away just with something like that anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but then obviously implementing regular deloads. Um, if you're noticing that you're getting into sessions and you are getting worse rather than getting better, um, then certainly it's it's going to be uh, a time to to actually rest and, and let the body recover a little bit. Um, especially if, as well, if you're picking up lots of niggles and things like that, um, you're finding that your joints and uh, your tendons and everything like that are, are feeling sore quite regularly, um, then, of course, it's, it's going to be very, very important from a physical standpoint to make sure you're getting enough rest. And obviously, as well, is that, um, you know, muscle tissue, the amount of time that you're in the gym is only very small in the course of the week. Mm. And so if you're not paying attention to your recovery and rest protocols outside, you're, you're basically uh, kind of missing out on the, the most huge chunk of growing muscle there. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not, it's not going to be a case of you're growing it whilst you're in the gym. It's growing the majority of the time you're outside of the gym, isn't it? So. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's worthwhile, guys, looking at the um, fitness and fatigue kind of illustrations that show, obviously, you know, the more that fitness rises, so does fatigue. And so there, there's, it's kind of like a... Um, there will be a point where we can't continue to increase fitness with that rising level of fatigue and so rest is incredibly important in terms of a, phys a physical uh, aspect and, and again with mentally as well I, f I feel mm. that I feel so much more rejuvenated after my rest days um, I'm ready to get back in the gym I'm almost itching to get back in the gym after having that day off or two days off training um, and it really does uh, kind of reinstill my passion mm -hmm. for training and not that I, I lose it completely during the training week but it definitely gives me that um I think you know distance makes the heart grow fonder kind of feeling um yeah so I, I mean in myself and of course it's going to be very individual but for me mentally I need a day two days off the gym each week to to be able to carry on and do it continuously but I, I do see guys who hate having rest days and so i think that's a very individual sort of um, mm. thing with the mental aspect of of rest i think if you're finding motivation in training is starting to drop um especially if, if you're actually still working towards a goal but you're still finding motivation hard you you may have perhaps reached a point where you might be needing a rest you know if you've been sort of uh hammering away at it for a prolonged period of time not resting properly motivation dropping is a pretty clear sign that you might need to take some time to actually recover a little bit. Um, also, uh, as well as that, um, the training itself is a stress to add on to all the other stresses you've got. So you've got stress from your work, you've got stress from your relationships, you've got all these different life stresses. And then if you go and pile on a load of extra training stress alongside a calorie deficit, 
um, it's going to lead to pretty severe uh, issues and you know things like anxiety, depression, things like that can come from from really overdoing it in all aspects of life. So you know, rest is is you know vitally important. Mm, definitely. Josh Charles says, if you're looking to drop body fat and get some serious shreds, what training would you recommend? I'm in a calorie deficit, doing daily cardio, hitting 10,000 steps daily, etc. But unsure on rep ranges, as I've heard different from everyone. And Josh, I'd just say that shreds is spelt with a Z at the end, not an S. Okay, so I mean, get serious shreds. You, you said there you're in a calorie deficit. Okay, so you prolong a calorie deficit for long enough, and you're going to get some serious shreds. Um, now, whether doing daily cardio is perhaps required is is going to be dependent upon multiple things. How um, active you are, you've said you're hitting 10,000 steps daily. So in reality, I'd, I would say that doing daily cardio sessions alongside weight sessions, possibly not necessary. Um, possibly try and get a little bit more of your deficit from nutrition and uh, reduce the cardio down so it's not impacting on your weights. In terms of rep ranges, um, there's no one rep range that you should be working in in order to uh, get shredded um, work a, a, across a multitude of rep ranges if your goal is predominantly uh, body composition so you know being big and shredded um, then in reality spend majority of your time in the hypertrophy ranges so between 6 to 15 reps spend a little bit of time below it perhaps and a little bit of time above that um, but in reality you want to be doing majority of your rep ranges within 6 to 15 and you know generally the higher the rep range you're working in the less sets you'll be doing and the lower the rep range the, the more sets you'll be doing so there's no particular way you need to do it getting shredded just comes down to creating a calorie deficit and then making sure your training is doing enough to maintain your muscle mass as you, you go through it yeah definitely yeah. and I, th I think it's worth mentioning as well that um, regardless of whether you're a, you know a bodybuilder or a physique athlete or just general population trying to lose weight and become shredded like he mentions there um, I think we should turn our focus from just losing body fat to also retaining as much muscle mass as possible because it is quite quite easy to get lean. You know, we like you say, you sustain that calorie deficit over a prolonged period of time and you will get shredded. But that's that's pretty easy. To do that coincided with retaining all the muscle mass or most of the muscle mass that you have is where the challenge comes. So um, pay particular attention to your training. Try and retain um, as much of your your strength as possible throughout your training and throughout your diet. Um, and that's where it gets really interesting. And that's where um, your physique will will differ from somebody who's just dieted hard and got a pumpy mm. session in the gym every day to somebody who's worked very hard to retain strength and also diet hard alongside that. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 seen in the people who finish their diet and go oh my god I'm, I'm skinny do you know what I mean <laughs> yeah they've not really held on to any muscle tissue at all and they haven't done the things that built the at the end of the day what built muscle tissue is what you should continue doing mm. through your prep it shouldn't look any different um, you might have to reduce volume a little bit because you've got not, not got as much food going in you but definitely still try and hold on to as much strength as you possibly can yeah definitely Jack Grace says thoughts on incorporating deadlifts into your routine if your goal is physique based Heard very mixed arguments for and against, so would love to hear your opinions. We may have slightly different opinions on this as well, which I think would be quite good. Oh, okay. So do you want to start with kind of what you think with it? Yeah, so I think the angle that Jack is coming at is, you know, some of the arguments for like thickening of the waist and stuff like that. 
And I think that's the argument that he, or the angle that he's coming at. Um, and if he is, then, you know, like any exercise with progressive overload, you will build muscle or musculature around the area that's being worked. And so there is an element of, um, I, I think there's going to be an element of truth to the waist thickening from lots of deadlift being in your programming. But if you're not a power lifter who is deadlifting three or four times a week, progressively, you know, all the time, then I don't think it's going to be so much of an issue that you should not incorporate it into your programming. And actually, I think it's a fantastic exercise that works. You get a lot of bang for your buck, right? So it it does a lot in a single in a single movement. So actually, I advocate it as as a movement, regardless of whether you're a physique athlete or a strength athlete. Um, but I mean, it completely depends on what angle you're coming at it from. If if, mm. if you're thinking that it's going to thicken the waist, then I would say that it's not so much of an issue that you need to steer clear of deadlifts altogether. So that's my kind of thoughts on on deadlifts for a physique athlete. Mm. I mean, uh, going on actually from that kind of thickening of the waist as well, it's like your your external obliques and your your QL and uh, they're not really going to grow that that large. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. you can't really get those muscles to grow that big. Mm. Um, and in reality, when you look at someone who's really lean, one of the first things you notice is what do their external obliques look like? <laughs> if their external obliques look fucking unreal, you're like, Jesus, look at that yeah. you know, guy. It really sort of pops, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and so being, being worried about perhaps thickening of the waist in reality is probably not much. It shouldn't be, I wouldn't have thought, much of a concern. No. The, the kind of angle I was going to come at it from uh, is if you are perhaps, say, looking to um, perhaps build, uh, so increase the, the size of your, say, hamstrings, um and you know perhaps uh you're kind of focusing on muscle development posteriorly um i would perhaps argue that there is a case to remove conventional deadlifts um from a perhaps a a, a period of time spent trying to develop them uh in favor of say romanian deadlifts right. and the main reason i would say that is dependent upon if you are controlling the eccentric of the deadlift um, so if you're doing very heavy deadlifts and the eccentric movements so the lowering of the bar is, is essentially just a controlled drop, which is what I would expect for people doing obviously very heavy weight, mm. um, then that's a, a period of time where you are losing tension on the muscle. Mm. Uh, you're getting the concentric, you're getting the, the uh, lift from the floor, but you are missing out on the eccentric. Mm. And so I, I would perhaps argue that you know, if that's an area that you're looking to develop a little bit more than maybe paying a little bit of attention on Romanian deadlifts or at least incorporating both into your program might be a good, uh, good rule of thumb. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess the problem that you run into with having both programmed in is just the, the recoverability of the low yeah. back during during the working week. And so, like you say, if your focus is on the posterior, then you might benefit more from the Romanian deadlift um, so that you, you know, you're not constantly loading the lower back and uh, you can actually get more bang for your buck in that respect with the, the mm. Romanian. But uh, obviously both exercises are, are incredible exercises and, and as long as you, you are getting better at them and you are getting stronger at them, they will build. But um, if I was going to say to someone and they were like, I want to do either, what, what sort of deadlift should I do? Or I want to do either Romanians or standard conventional, I would probably urge them more towards RDLs than, than a standard deadlift. Cool. Um, yeah, that cool. makes sense. Chris Squire says that he's going to be greedy and ask three, lol. Number one, 
Who has the biggest calves, Adam or Ollie? Right. Well, how long we got, mate? We got. I got twenty minutes before I got to go, so we have to try it. Try and cram this in each each argument, mate. I think the the uh, the best thing to do here is um, to answer this retrospectively and maybe measure them, and that would be the fairest way to do this. Yeah, that's that's probably a good shout actually, and that's as time efficient as well. Exactly. I, I could probably argue for ages about this, <laughs> but yeah. if, if it comes out and yours are bigger, then I just look like a wanker. Exactly. Yeah. So when I win, um, we'll just put that <laughs> in after. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a bone structure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, weight belts for progressing deadlifts, good or bad? Uh, well, I would say good. Mm. Um, essentially, at the end of the day, if, if you're working at a, perhaps 85% of your one rep max or higher, um, so you're probably looking at below you know, five to six reps, and I don't know many people who deadlift very often above that rep range, um, then having a weight belt to be able to create some intra-abdominal pressure, so pressure within the body, to help support the spine when you're lifting some heavy loads is certainly a good thing. I would certainly recommend it. Um, trying to create that much tension when you know you're lifting, say, if you've got a big deadlift like 180, 200 kilos, um, without a belt is going to feel pretty horrible. Mm. Uh, and in reality, it's not it's not taking any tension away from your hamstrings or your glutes if you're um, incorporating proper form, but it's just going to uh, you know, it's going to save and safeguard your back. So I would say, you know, 100%, yes, good thing. Yeah, definitely. Number three, a lot of people in my gym are concentrating on time under tension and really slowing down tempo with lower weights rather than the progressive overload method. I know you go for progressive overload and it's what I'm used to, but what are your thoughts on focusing on tempo? Yeah, so um, certainly, as you said there, we're much more for progressive overload. It's definitely, you know, the, based upon the, the studies and all the research done on it, the, the biggest factor you need to focus on when it comes to growing muscle mass. Um, obviously, increasing time under tension for that metabolic stress, so for creating that pump, can be a, a useful addition. Um, but I would put that at the actual end of sessions. If you are slowing down your eccentrics so excessively that you are actually limiting how much weight you can lift, and therefore your lifts are probably going down mm -hmm. rather than up, mm -hmm. and you're putting less tension across the muscle, then you, you are, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face you're you're going against in reality what's going to be most effective in that time you spend in the gym um in terms of what my thoughts are on tempo though it doesn't mean i think you should just drop the weight you know to the chest and mm. then you know not concentrate on it at all i think you shouldn't let gravity um bring it down um i would probably probably suggest about a two second eccentric mm. so not overly overly uh, slowing it down but obviously making sure the muscles at least doing some work on the way down and and more than anything just to make sure that you're in a good position to uh, start the concentric from you know if you're really f like letting the weight drop down and you're starting it from in a bad positions um, from a, a position of instability um, you're going to be limiting how much you can press up or, or whatever you're doing you know yeah uh, so yeah that's that's my thoughts on it what about you Ollie? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, in the exact same boat as you. Um, there's definitely, you, it, we have to be mindful of tempo in that we, like you say, need to control the eccentric part of movements. Um, but I don't feel that it's it's a method that we should be employing for all of our training. Um, mm. and, and there is a place for it. And, and I've, I've found as well, observationally, that um, excessive use of, you know, slow negatives often leads to delayed onset muscle soreness, which then can impede your training later on in the week. So um, 
like you said, it's it's good for the pump um, and the metabolic stress, but it shouldn't be our main focus when we when we build our training programming. Mm. Yeah, uh, if you want to um, if you want to see some a funny video of it, uh, search for. <laughs> Fred Han, <laughs> yeah. um, for his slow burn principles, it's brilliant. What is so, it? How long is it? It's like a three minute uh, rep, isn't it, or something like that? Or... Yeah, it's like it's at least a forty second eccentric. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like watching paint dry. It's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels like you've got like a dodgy signal on your Wi-Fi, and it's just sort of like stopping. <laughs> you know what I mean? All about um, that time under tension, though. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so next question we've got in. Wayne May says, hi guys, are there any supplements worth taking alongside good diet and training? Um, so we're obviously, you know, not uh, registered dietitians or nutritionists or anyone who can recommend uh, supplements at all. And so I, I wouldn't recommend any supplements, but I could tell you that what I take is um, a good source of essential fatty acids. Um, I take some creatine monohydrate and I, I actually use a green powder because I'm quite um, aware that my, my veggie intake isn't exactly amazing. So I do take a greens powder just to make sure that I'm covering my micronutrient um, uh, needs and an essential fat, fatty acid and a creatine monohydrate. I take five grams of that a day. But other than that, I don't really take anything. What about you, Ads? You, uh, are you using anything? Uh, pretty much exactly the same. So yeah, I have my... Um... I don't eat any oily fish, um, so I get my essential fatty acid intake from um, some fish oils. Uh, I take a multivitamin. Um, I take vitamin D as well. I was going to um, say vitamin D. Yeah. There's a lot of good research on vitamin D. That's it. So in terms of deficiency, it's definitely the uh, the vitamin that the majority of the I guess the world mm -hmm. uh, is deficient in, and especially living in good old sunny UK, we tend to be quite deficient in it pretty pretty regularly. So um, it's definitely something worthwhile incorporating just for hormonal function and health mm. and things like that as well. Um, and uh, you mentioned creatine, which is one I take as well. So it's, it's one of the only particularly evidence-based supplements for uh, strength, endurance, and muscle mass gain. Um, and then the only other thing I might take sparingly is, is caffeine, mm. <laughs> just for its performance-enhancing yeah. uh, capabilities and um, most people have far too much caffeine anyway, so it's uh, not <laughs> yeah. something that you really need to be going, yeah, I think you need more caffeine in your diet, mate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Thought of another question. When finishing a cut, what's the best way to come out of it without sabotaging everything you've just achieved? You put some character into that one. Didn't I? Yeah, there was some real, there was some real individuality. I was going for some intonation with that one. Mm. Yeah, so we've spoken about this on um, one of the previous podcasts about the recovery diet mm. um, and how essentially our, our aim after coming out of a cut should be to restore um, things back to their baseline levels as quickly as possible. doesn't mean that we restore our previous body fat um, or previous body weight, um, but we certainly want to bring calories up back up to maintenance and what our new maintenance figure would be as kind of soon as possible I would recommend mm. it may mean a very small I know Wayne I know you're a pretty lean guy um, so it may mean a small increase in body fat percentage perhaps you know but in reality uh, feeling a lot better for it on a day-to-day -day basis um, being a little bit more uh, I guess uh, carb restored in the muscles is going to help with your, your training as well you probably sleep better 
Um, so my my recommendations are just get back up to, to your new maintenance as soon as possible. Keep an eye on the scales. If they are starting to jump up, then you know you've you've gone past maintenance into a surplus, um, and then just sort of yeah, you know track it down and, and adjust based on that. Mm, and also, uh, you just become far more huggable because at the minute, Wayne, <laughs> it's like hugging a secondhand deck chair. So nobody <laughs> wants that, mate. Um, just just get some more meat on your bones, and then uh, everyone will be happier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Although after having seen the picture of the last podcast we did, um, like freeze framed up yeah. on the screen, it was my big moon face. Yeah. And, and and now I'm feeling like I'm a little bit too huggable right now. <laughs> There's no such uh, thing as too huggable, mate. Yeah. No, no. I don't know. I'm starting to I'm starting to look like what I did when I was about four again. And I'm getting a bit worried. <laughs> the tractor. <laughs> the tractor shot. Yeah. The tractor shot. Yeah. If anyone follows me on Instagram, you'll see that's that's what I'm becoming again. Um, Jim Spoons Grayley says, can you provide details of the Build with Brown Condition with Carson program? Such things as, what is the purpose of the program? What is the cost? And how long it lasts for? Um, Jim, what I would recommend is if you go into the Facebook group, Build with Brown Condition with Carson, um, we'll be popping up all the details in there over the next, um, the next week. And in terms of what it actually is, um, the purpose of the program is is actually more in terms of building muscle mass. Um, so there are very few p- programs out on the market at the minute, which is where that is the priority. Um, and then we do finish with a, a slight fat loss phase for those who do want to go into it. Um, but uh, in reality, the main thing is we're trying to build physiques and also trying to build the knowledge base of people. So we've got plenty of webinars and things that go on in there. Um, the program itself is 22 weeks. And so therefore it is actually a, you know, a longer term program. And obviously the idea is for it to not be just short, extreme um, kind of uh, results. It's, it's, you know, something that's a little bit more sustainable and a little bit more long term. Mm. Cool. So the, the next question is Harry Sharp asks, is it difficult to maintain a shredded look as I have seen a lot of bulking and cutting, but haven't seen much of anyone keeping a shredded look yourselves included. <laughs> He didn't say that. So I don't know if you had yeah. any 10 pence on that, Adam. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, keeping a shredded look, like once you are shredded, um, and also it depends where our definition of shredded is, yeah. because like my definition of shredded um, is some of the guys that, you know, you see that jump on stage at sort of 5% body fat, mm. and, you know, they cannot hold that, that condition without <laughs> passing out, you know what I mean, mm. for, for much more than probably a week or two. Um and so in reality, if your kind of idea of what shredded is, is something like 10% body fat, um, then certainly, yeah, it's something that you can maintain. Um, I, I managed to maintain uh, kind of last year fairly well. Um, I was probably around about 12%, something like that. Mm. Um, in reality, it's just you have to keep up the same habits mm. that you, you had in place beforehand. Um, you need to still be at a maintenance calorie figure, you know, so obviously that means that you're going to have to pay attention to calories um, over the course of a weekly basis. You know, so um, I think the main issue that people have is over the course of a year, you're going to have lots of nights out. You're going to have lots of things like social occasions you've got to go to. And in, you know, what that means is for you to be able to maintain a shredded look and still do that, you need to, you know, outside of those times kind of account for them. Mm. You know, so it might mean that to maintain a shredded look, you need to have 
four or five days a week at a deficit in order to allow for perhaps over indulging at, at the weekend or so you know so to speak yeah a lot of people um, see see like maintaining this shredded look I, I put shredded look in quotation marks because like you say people's perception of the word shredded is very different but you know a good lean look and they they see maintenance of that as like a linear if you were to illustrate it some sort of linear graph but mm-hmm. in reality it's more likely going to look like peaks and troughs small peaks and troughs you know coming yeah. down generally speaking in the week it's that five two dieting where in the week we're, we're on it and then on the weekend we're a little bit more relaxed um mm-hmm. and it does have that those little waves and so um don't feel like your your weight is just going to sit the same throughout this period yeah. of being particularly lean it's it's more often than not your ups and downs yeah i mean maintaining uh, a shredded look is is actually a battle <laughs> yeah. despite what despite what people might look, make you look like on Instagram where they're always out and about and eating loads of shit and you know what I mean? Mm. And look shredded. The times when they're not on Instagram, they're battling pretty hard to hold on to <laughs> what they've got, you know? So, yeah. yeah, it's not as easy as people make it seem like it is. People were like, oh, I'm just uh, totally eating these donuts so shredded off my stomach, yeah. It's like, <laughs> mate, come on. We know you just smell just, it. Just fueling the machine. Yeah. All right, so we got two more questions, and uh, we'll have to get through these ones quicker now, mate. Um, so last, uh, well, sorry, the second to last one, we got Patrick Turpin. Uh, what difference in energy does fat and carbs give? Once you set your protein intake and use carbs and fats to make up the rest of calories, which is best set higher? Um, I would say that the most important thing to look after your protein is your fat intake because um, carbohydrate is is the only macronutrient that isn't essential. Um, so once you set your protein, which is going to be, set at a point that's um you know enough to keep as much muscle as possible if you're in a deficit or to build muscle if you're in a gaining phase um you then need to look at your fat intake to ensure that you know hormonally everything is is running tickety-boo and then the rest of your calories will come from carbohydrate so um fat definitely takes precedence over carbohydrate in that respect would you agree agree there adam yeah 100 percent. and then in terms of what is best to set higher once you've set fats to an essential level um then it's just coming down to personal preference um you spoke about there what difference in energy does fat and carbs give i'm not sure if you mean in terms of like like fast or slow and and all those Mm. kinds of things um from from that kind of perspective uh you know fat itself will you know it's it's much slower at creating energy the actual process of of creating chemical energy from fat so um in terms of like it, it comes down to kind of what uh, your lifestyle is like you know if you are a very active individual with a larger amount of muscle mass uh, then you're going to require energy perhaps in uh, larger quicker doses throughout the day which might mean that your your intake of carbs might be slightly higher however if your energy is called upon fairly um, fairly infrequently throughout the day if you're sat at a desk then you know you might find that a more stable and, and slower pace of, uh, I guess, energy proliferation from fat intake being a bit higher might be a good a good you know, option for you. Mm. Um, cool. And the, the, cool. the, the last question there from Rishi Verma, and sorry if I've butchered your name there, um, is <laughs> long-term fitness, methods for setting yourself up to be shredded in your retirement and in good health, unlike brackets, apparently many bodybuilders. Also, is there a difference between bodybuilding and physique athletes in this regard? Uh, yeah, so certainly 
um, there is many bodybuilders who have uh, unfortunately um, paid the price of not spending much time focusing on recovery and mm. focusing on things like mobility. Um, but then also, obviously, a lot of the, the issues that have occurred with a lot of these guys is they were assisted and training at ridiculously high volumes with, um, you know, very high loads for a prolonged period of time. And obviously, as they came off of that, uh, continued perhaps trying to do so and uh, unfortunately paid the price in terms of their, um, I guess, their mobility, uh, their joint health and all those kinds of things. Um, I mean, I would say that one of the best fitness methods to actually focus on um, as you get older is, is your mobility. Um, so if you're looking to maintain a lean position as you get older, in reality, the main things you've got to keep focusing on is movement. So can I still keep moving well enough in order to get in the gym uh, consistently or to, to do whatever activity and, you know, thing that you love doing. Um, and then alongside that, making sure that nutrition habits stay in place and that <laughs> you don't think just cause I'm getting older that I don't need to, you know, think about calories so much anymore mm. because those are the two things that are going to have the longest, longest term impact on, you know, what your, I guess, physique looks like, you know, moving well and fueling yourself well yeah i think that's great advice it's uh it's a bit of an insurance policy to stay on top of your mobility and joint health um in that you know it's going to give you that longevity with your training so the longer that you can move well for the the longer you can maintain a, a very nice physique so that's definitely some sound advice um and that actually brings us to a close on all those questions and so we really appreciate you guys getting your questions in um and we will be doing similar podcasts to this. Uh, so do look out on our social media platforms for further questions or prompts for questions for a future podcast. But in the meantime, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for listening. And Adam and I will speak to you again very soon. This has been Team No Cars Radio with Ollie and Adam. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to Team No Cavs Radio. Remember, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, progressive overload, and boom, anything is possible. 